Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Josh Simons, CEO and co-founder of Vamper, the world's largest and most active social professional network for musicians. First of all, the CD has turned 40 years old. Yes, the first one was commercially released on October 1st, 1982. Back then, CD players were about $500 a piece, and a CD cost between $15.99 and $17.99, and everybody thought that was way too high. Now, the interesting thing is that the CD wasn't accepted by record labels right off. There was a lot of pushback from them. It took two years to convince them that they should actually go with this. Some of the problems that they had were about packaging, and the reason why was they're small. So retailers thought they're expensive and too easy to steal. Then they're also worried because there's no album graphics, and that was a really big deal for retailers because it was a big deal for consumers at the time. Another thing was that record plants didn't want to change. They're pretty happy with the status quo and really didn't want to buy new equipment. Finally, retailers didn't want to change either because they were pretty happy. It was going really well at the time. They're making a lot of money, and they didn't want to buy new displays. So there was a lot of pushback, and it took a lot to really get the major labels on board with this. Classical music embraced the CD because it was long enough, because it was long enough to record a movement no matter how long it was. So conductors jump right in. And then there were artists. Stevie Wonder was one of the first to adopt it. But Billy Joel's 52nd Street was actually the first CD. The problem was there were no pressing plants in the United States, so it had to be made in Japan and then shipped out to the United States. But more and more artists, when they heard it, when they got to participate, they began to like it and they really applied the pressure to the major labels. Surprisingly enough, nobody talked about how vinyl sounded better at the time. Everybody loved the sound of the CD. So once the labels got on board, they had to get consumers. And what they did was they gave CD players away to the top 45 radio stations, who then played a CD and bragged to their audience that there was a brand new digital sound that was cleaner and clearer, and next thing you know, consumers wanted it as well. Now, if it sounds like record labels are being nice guys here, they really weren't. Because what they did was they made all their artists sign addendums to their contract, saying that the royalty rate was going to be the same for the CD as it was to vinyl. And of course, they looked at that and they thought, well, okay, that seems all right. But what they didn't think about was the fact that this was selling for more. So they were basically getting less money. And as a result, this caused a lot of problems from the standpoint that many artists never got over that. The other thing that happened, though, was the fact that in 1987, CD sales finally passed vinyl and really created what we know today as catalog sales as people went out to buy CDs to replace all their vinyl. So the CD today isn't what it used to be, but it's had a long and fruitful history. And don't be surprised if we get another format that follows the same path. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. 
Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, one of the things I keep on featuring is when a popular gear manufacturer is acquired or gets sold or the founders retire because then everything changes. Well, we have another one. It's the first one in a while. Audiotonics has acquired Slate Digital. So you probably know Slate Digital from all the plugins, drum trigger, etc. Lots of really great stuff. And now they're part of the Audiotonics family. Audiotonics already owns Allen and Heath, Calrec, Digico, Digigrid, Group One Limited, Clang Technologies, Solid State Logic, and Sound Devices. So Slate Digital fits right in. Slate Digital really isn't an old company. It was co-founded in 2008 by Stephen Slate and Fabrice Gabriel to create digital audio tools for professional producers and mixers and engineers. Since then, the company has developed a wide variety of software plugins, mixing and mastering audio processing software, virtual microphone modeling, audio samples, and video courses. The thing about it is, working with a bigger DSP team is probably a good thing for Slate Digital. They can do things that they probably could not do if they had just stayed independent. Small companies run out of resources that they need to develop new products or enter a new market. Sometimes an acquisition is the only way to go. My guest this week is Josh Simons, CEO and co-founder of Vampir, the world's largest and most active social professional network for musicians. Often dubbed the LinkedIn for creatives, Vampir is home to over 1 million users and active in every country on the planet. The music startup has helped fledging musicians broker over 7 million connections worldwide and has made the best apps lists for both Apple and Google. Prior to running Vampir, Josh spent the better part of a decade as a successful artist, songwriter, and producer. His artist project Buchanan enjoyed multi-million streams and chart impressions worldwide. As a producer and songwriter, Josh has shared credits with Travis Scott, Troy A. Savan, and Kanye West, just to name a few. He's also named in the Music Network's 30 Under 30 list, in addition to being voted Reader's Choice. During the interview, we spoke about touring expenses, using unseen collaborators, representing artists for sync placements, learning from bad publishing deals, and much more. I spoke with Josh via Zoom from his office in Australia. I want to know a little bit about your history. Let's talk about you getting into the business. You started as a player, right? Yeah. Well, I actually started as a manager, and it was my frustration as a manager. Um, I was managing two really incredibly talented um, Australian bands, one of them sort of still going. I won't say who they are out of respect to the bands, but um, they were not. Um, there's this alternative sort of rock scene that you get in, I guess, three big cities in the world, London, Melbourne and Berlin. And there's a certain, at least back then, we're talking 15 years ago, but there's a certain almost credibility to not sort of selling out and commercially performing, getting your songs on commercials and things like that. And as a manager, that was very frustrating because you're, 
you know, you're not doing it for charity and you're trying to make a living and you're trying to get them to build a sustainable career. Um, and so my frustration with their reluctance to do things like that is actually what started my own artist project. I was like, well, I hear a sound that I think would suit the airwaves right now. And, you know, what without, in my mind, at least being a sellout by conventional standards, but I heard a sound and, and that was kind of where I started playing. Um, you know, I, I'd played piano and drums since I was a, a baby, but um, I'd never considered doing it as a job. And then within about a six month period, I went from an idea to start a band to doing big national tours and being on the radio. So it all happened very quickly, very quickly. And, wow. and as I say, as I say in like most interviews, that's not the norm. Like, and I'm totally aware of that. Like, <laughs> that's the exception, not the rule. No kidding. Um, wow. Well, good for you. That, that's yeah. great when that happens. <laughs> but you know, the the like any story, it, it's it wasn't you know smooth sailing by any stretch of the imagination. It was um, you know, to our frustration, we were only finding that level of success in Australia, and part of the reason was because we were a fully independent, like properly independent act. As in, there's sort of independent acts that are on you know major indie labels, and then there's truly independent acts, and we were having these successes while remaining hundred percent truly independent. And so I wanted to tackle bigger markets, particularly the UK, which is where I'm from, but we just didn't have the the means or the resources to do so. And so we got kind of pigeonholed into this Australian market that was is limiting. I mean, ask any artist that's broken in Australia and nowhere else, they'll, they'll express similar concern. And so it's, um, it was part of the reason actually that, that shoe like more pigeonholing rather was why I started the Vamper company because I I realized, okay, the problem here is that I don't have the right networks in the right places and there's no real quick way to do that online. Uh, so that was kind of, it was that frustration that led me to create this company. How did you get to LA? So that's a good question. When we were starting to make Vamp, I was still touring. I think at the time I was on tour with Keith Urban and it was our, that was it. that ended up being our last tour, but we weren't to know that at the time. And uh, we kind of had the luxury, in many respects, of taking our time with building the first version of the app and the and the platform because we were me and my partner were both active touring musicians. But then you hit a certain point and you realize, okay, I'm representing other people's money. You know, I've got shareholders. I've, I've got a responsibility, like a fiduciary responsibility. I need to probably start to take this a little bit more seriously. And so it, that became a full-time job. And part of realizing, okay, I've got to take this far more seriously was realizing that Australia was again, not the right place to launch the product, not the right place to raise capital. It's just a, it's, you know, it's 20 times smaller market than the U S or something. So it just didn't make sense to be putting our effort and full, full-time energy into it in a, again, a small market. And so that we, we identified LA, don't ask me why I think, it was going to be Nashville or LA or New York maybe, but um, we ended up going with LA because we identified LA as being a saturated market of very early stage aspirants, I'd call them. And whereas I think Nashville attracts more of a working class musician that might already have a, a network. And these are generalizations, of course, but there's some truth to it. Whereas LA is more people coming, looking for opportunity. And our platform is really designed to, enable people who are looking for opportunity. Uh, so it just made sense. Now, you know, seven years later, speaking to you today, I can quite truthfully tell you that I could have run the company from Mexico beach and we'd probably be in the same position 
and that's just because it's a it's a mobile platform. We have a remote team. COVID drew us, pushed us even further remote. Even though we were always a remote company, it made things even more remote. So we could run the business anywhere in the world. Um, but I chose LA. I met my wife shortly that my now wife shortly thereafter. You know, it, it changed my life. So um, I'm very glad that we sort of made that. Um, guess <laughs> well i think your assumptions are correct though in terms of the musical draw of people going to nashville and and it, new york is in a class by itself because i think you either grow up there you don't aspire to go there so much unless you're from the area but la is different because it, i'm it drew me from the east coast because it's warm <laughs> more than anything yeah so you start vampire then and the idea was originally to make it easier to find other musicians. Yeah. So the, the initial version of the platform, you could have called the program Connecting the Band. It was like bass players, drummers, singers, producers, and I think we had managers. And then this happened quite uh, methodically and quite slowly over time. But we'd start getting emails going, well, why don't you have graphic designers why don't you have lighting engineers why don't you have sound engineers and live sound engineers and so the list kept growing and then you know we get can you put banjo in and can you put choirs in and backing singers and and we kept adding categories and adding categories and then eventually we said okay this this isn't the very scalable solution so we flipped the model and we let people decide to input their own skill sets and so once we open those floodgates today we have I think nearly 30,000 different types of job music, you know, job type in the music world. And that's great. It does mean that searching gets more complicated because how do people find what they want in so many rabbit holes? But that's our job to sort that those sorts of technical issues out. So, yeah, it's grown. Like it, the, the scope of the app has grown. And now if you read anything about us online, you might see that we're planning to go beyond music into other creative verticals and extend into sort of film and TV and fine art and that's happening. It's a, again, we, we've always done this quite methodically. Um, there's, there's method to our madness and um, we'll continue down that path. Uh, and the analogy that I often use to folks is like, think about Facebook in the very, very early days. Like it just spoke to a couple of universities, colleges, and then they went and expanded to more colleges. And then eventually they added high schools and then eventually they opened it up to everybody in essence, by putting those sort of artificial constraints around your user base, you do create some level of FOMO and some artificial demand, I suppose. And it's healthy. It's healthy in a startup to have that because when you're this early stage as we are, the name of the game is growth. And so that those are some of the things that we have to do to ensure it. I know you lean towards self-categorization anymore. But that being said, you probably have a good feel about who is signing up and what trough they fall into. So just lately, in the last year, what is that? What's the most popular category? Yeah, well, the funny thing is that despite letting people self-identify and self-categorize and all that, it hasn't changed. Like, it, it, we still service the same core group of people, and that is producers and songwriters. That is the main bridge that we gap. Uh, and when I say songwriters, that's a generalization to include singer songwriters, bands, lead singers stepping out of their band, like all variations thereof, but connecting production people with people who write notes and lyrics, that is, that's our bread and butter, I suppose you could say. 
The reason why I bring it up is right now there's a giant demand for road crew. And the reason being COVID, so many of them just decided, well, I'm too old for this, so I'm going to stop. And there hasn't been enough people that have come in since then. So there's a big demand. And I was just wondering if maybe that was a, a category that you saw a splurge in. I don't know that it's surged because I, I, I haven't checked that specific example, but I do know that when the last time we looked at the number, like where did roadies sit in terms of like what percentage uh, or what spot on the ladder, if you will, it was surprisingly high. Like, I, I don't know if it was top 10, but it was top 20. And that kind of shocked me, but it makes sense. I mean, they don't have, they the, look, LinkedIn sucks for music. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Vamper exists. And so it, sh- it shouldn't be shocking really that that was the case or is the case because uh, they don't have anywhere else to really advertise online. I know, you know, I'm still from when I was an artist, I'm still connected on Facebook and stuff with some of some of my fellow colleagues from back in the day. And I read their posts every day about how hard it is to support their crews, if not just finding crews, but then, you know, getting gigs that pay enough to justify having them stick around for the length of a tour. It's really rough out there at the moment. Yeah. And I feel for them and hopefully platforms like ours can help bridge whatever gap there may be in their calendar at present, but it's uh, it's really scary for live music right now. Hasn't It hasn't recovered the way that I think some people would like to pretend it has. Yeah, that's for sure, and I don't know that it will. I mean, so many venues have closed, so that's a big thing right away, and, and the costs of, of going out on the road are so much higher than they used to be. They were creeping up anyway. I think that's always one thing. You know how people, you often read like interviews with folks in the music industry and they'll say you know artists make most of their money from touring that might be true for the Coldplay's and the U2's and the um the weekends but anyone who's not doing an arena tour it's bloody expensive to take like and I know this firsthand taking a theater crew around any country is like really difficult because you, you're trying to put on an almost arena level show but you're not got you've got a tenth of the seats to sell you've got to somehow cover the costs of maybe 40 or 50 crew members it we never we were lucky to break even on some of our tours you know it, it for us that that statement never rang true and i know it's worse now so it makes me shudder a little bit i'm kind of glad that i'm not out there in, in that particular fight but um i know plenty are when you started the platform you said seven years right yeah okay so i would bet maybe i'm wrong but you'll tell me when you started it was mostly for bands that were looking for members. And now all this is kind of flipped in that there are fewer bands and with home studios being so powerful, you can pretty much do it on your own. You may be looking for a collaborator, but you're not specifically looking for a band you know, or band members. Is that true? I, I think that's gonna be true for the, the, for the rest of time. I, I did a TED talk on this once and the point of it was nothing aside from breathing and masturbation can truly be accomplished on your own. <laughs> and what I mean, what I mean by that, it's a shocking statement, of yeah. course, but what I really mean by that is that, you know, we don't, we take all of this for granted, but right now with stuff in Ukraine going on, supply chains is a common word and people are learning about it more, which is a good thing, but supply chains are a part of every industry, whether it's a plumber who goes to the local you know, storage warehouse place to pick up plumbing and then takes it to his client. There's so many people involved in any transaction. You go to the supermarket, think about, you pick up a roll of toilet, think of 
think about the packaging and how that got printed and, and then driving that to one for anyway, I won't bore you with it all, but music and creativity is no exception. There's, there's almost indirect collaboration, even when you think it's just you. Um, so sure you can sit in front of a computer and pick up an acoustic guitar and record a track all on your own, but then inevitably you're going to send it to someone for mixing or mastering, or you're going to get your friend to design the cover and then you've got to get a photographer to take your picture. And then you've got to call a promoter to go on your first show. The point is, is that even though creating music is more in some ways easy to do on your own than ever, you invariably or inevitably, sorry, uh, do end up collaborating quite extensively throughout the release process. You deal with a distributor that distributor deals with a, a delivery partner and, and so on and so forth. And so part of our job is to educate people about this, help them understand that as an artist, you are a small business and as a small business, you've got to treat this like a business. Yeah. Um, and then once you educate them and you've got to do that sensitively, right? Because that's a quick way to alienate folks too. So once you work out how to, to communicate these things, then you've got to highlight the virtues of collaboration and building relationships that are uh, built on foundations of trust and support and encouragement and all these great things that happen in the world of music but that need to be cultivated and fostered and so yes a lot's changed but at the same time nothing's changed i, I hope that makes i hope that perspective makes sense no, um, I get it. yeah so vampir is also expanded we're an education platform now as well as a social network Yes, but I mean, you've expanded into publishing and distribution as well. True, yes. Yep. So the, the idea is that, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word one-stop shop because it's overused, but the idea is that folks come to Vampa primarily for the networking, maybe to learn a little bit, but that as their career blossoms and evolves, they'll start to need things like distribution. They'll start to need things like publishing. They're going to need some marketing tools, collaboration tools. We've got things coming along the way. We're trying to sort of, if you think of the the independent artist as the son of their own solar system and the planets as the things that they're going to eventually need to reach out to and what have you, we're trying to position it that way that we'll give them the foundation, help them in the center there with that networking and the foundational pieces like needing the connecting the Johns and the Pauls and what have you, and then letting them reach out and grabbing these individual services ad hoc as required. And it's it's a unique take because if you look at other music tech companies like splice or lambda or distro kid they're selling services and so they go we're a services company and we're going to market to a set a, a demographic that is at a certain part of their career and we're going to get them to buy our stuff we're saying come all uh, any sort of experience level and then as you want your services reach out and grab them and it, it's just a slight it's a it's a subtle shift but it's a it's an important one and i think there's no one else really tackling it from that angle which you know and, and we, we get to be we're, we're the biggest at what we do but that doesn't really mean you know sfa we, we've got a long ways to go to get to the kind of critical mass that we'd like to get to but if we prove this model i think you'll see other people replicate it in other fields what is the publishing deal like um that was born out of so it's probably important to just quickly touch on the history of the company so we sort of we, we launched the well we registered the company in 2015 we spent a year or two sort of coming out with the first version. We launched that. It won a whole pile of awards straight away, got a whole bunch of downloads, but it was built on a pretty shaky code base and there was no business model built in and it was very hard to scale. And so we actually shut things down for like 18 months. 
then we said, okay, we let's work out what we did right. And there's a pile of things that we did right, quite a high pile of list of list of things that we did right. But then there was a, an even bigger pile of things that we got really wrong. And so we went back to the drawing board and we said, what, how can we start again building on the idea? We know that we're hitting, we're solving a problem that no one else is solving, but it's not a business yet. So we sort of went and worked that out. Part of that exercise was a brainstorming session where we said, what's our number one asset? And the easy, the answer was easy. It was the size of our user base at the time. We had about half a million people. So we said, okay, we've got half a million people who believe in this. That's fantastic. What do they all have in common? And then it occurred to us, and it was unrepresented IP, which is to say songs that had been completed but that didn't have a manager or a publisher or just, you know, a label pushing it out there in the open market. And so we said, uh-huh. We looked around the room. We said, "What? how have we all made our money from music and what's been the most valuable part of our careers? It's been sync and publishing. And so, and it's true, like that that paid for my lifestyle for several years, uh, which was lovely. So... What if we were to go out and represent all of our users' songs with their permission uh, and offer the kinds of terms that we'd want to enter into because we'd all signed terrible publishing deals as children? I've signed multiple terrible publishing <laughs> deals. And I'm happy to admit it, but you learn from those mistakes. How can we, once again, how can we help our community and our users avoid those sorts of mistakes that we made, offer the fairer deal? So we looked at all the other platforms that do online publishing stuff and we thought all of those deals were pretty unfair. Um, a lot of them are quite predatory. Uh, they would ask people to pay money before they even got them a result. And we're like, okay, let's build a sync model where you don't pay us anything <laughs> upfront at least. We'll take a commission if we deliver, um, but you certainly won't pay us to go out and do that work. It's The onus is on the company. Once we do deliver, the split that you get is better than you'll get on any other site. So it's 65, 35 in favor of the artist. Uh, and let's make it, across you know obviously you got your mechanical licenses your performance then you got your sync splits and that we just said 65 35 across the board not confusing it don't don't make it too complex give them a simple short form version of the agreement that covers everything so that even a fairly new entrant into the music industry could read it understand it press digitally sign it and get into our publishing program and away we went so we launched that. It was, I'd call it an absolute tremendous success on the supply side, which means we built catalog up faster than probably, probably I think faster than even Song Trader did when they came out. So we were probably one of the fastest growing catalogs in history, but we had no idea how to sell any of this into music supervisors. And we happened to launch this in the same month that COVID lockdown started. <laughs> and so Every music supervisor in the world was furloughed because all productions in England, Hollywood, Europe, every production, Australia, every production in the world shut down. And so no one was making films, TVs, video games, anything. So we had no music supervisors to build relationships with. We had a growing catalogue. Uh, and we realised, though, that growing a catalogue wasn't as simple as just letting people submit shit. We had to sort it. We had to listen to it. It needed A&R. It needed metadata um, confirmations and verifications. Uh, there was a whole ton of stuff that we hadn't considered. And it took us like 18 to 24 months to sort that. I mean, we've just sorted it out in looking at the clock with May, maybe. So we only sorted it out this year. And now, now we're all guns blazing and we're doing exactly what we said we'd do. We're, we're getting syncs for our... Um, for our users in places like HBO, CBS, ABC, Facebook, 
uh, and it's fantastic and they're loving it and it's very rewarding and satisfying for us too um but it, we just underestimated the the demand side and building the relationships there and on the sales and stuff so it's been a really interesting ride the publishing one um it was never the core business so i've never had a problem with it taking longer for us to work out um because it isn't the main thing that we do that's the network but it's been probably one of the more satisfying side projects of vampa that we've that we've launched is it a, an exclusive deal non-exclusive until we get a result so you can put your music on sync agencies websites you can go on song trader you can do it with us as well when we deliver a result because we are taking a much smaller cut than other people because we're not asking for any upfront payments to represent you and go out there and spend our time pitching the trade-off there is that when we do land you a result we ask for exclusivity for a two-year period but even the two years we think is super fair it gives us a chance to collect on the song while it's potentially going to get its moment in the sun but we're not holding on to it forever and then you get it back and you can give it back to us if you choose or you can take it elsewhere or you can you know register it yourself with song trust and self self administer it's really um really up to the individual at that 2 year mark but we again it's it's all part of what we're trying to frame as the fairest deal in the market it is fair oh that's really good okay how about distribution i saw you're doing that what does that cost so distribution has been an interesting one for us originally it was just a part of our pro bundle so vampa pro is like our subscription premium tier product that allows folks to network a little more intimately deeply more connection requests more content etc part of that pro bundle for a long time is distribution and we the sort of i guess the market differentiator from the other many thousands of distributors on the internet um was that we said you know keep 100% of your royalties also we were a month to month subscription um service which is slightly different business model than most distributors would do then like it had okay results but we realized that we were missing uh, an opportunity with the you know the 97% of people who weren't going to pay for pro why not offer distribution to them but if they're not going to pay we've got to find a different way to collect some revenue because it costs money like you know people don't realize how much money it costs to run a distribution company but you've got cute quality control teams you've got all of the troubleshooting between the stores and the and the artists and metadata problems anyway so I won't bore you with that but um in the end we said okay we'll keep for pro users who are paying us $5 a month they'll still keep 100% of their royalties that business model stays intact but we'll also open up our distribution portal to our free users with the caveat that we'll keep 20% of their world of any royalties generated and then they can do it that way So that's been really successful for us. Um and we're really happy that we did that. That we did that change about I think that was Christmas last year and um yeah folks are, folks are jumping on it like crazy which is fantastic. Um because there's not many truly free services out there. I think Amuse is one of them and they they're nice guys but most companies ask for some sort of upfront payment. So the pro tier then that's only $5 a month? Yeah, it's uh my the way you said that i i think you were i'd confuse you for one of my board members <laughs> <laughs> yeah that seems uh, incredibly reasonable yeah look you got to remember who you're dealing with right so we we do target very early stage musicians doesn't mean necessarily young it just means people at the start of their journey who don't have their own network their disposable income for in the field of professional development is low 
a lot of them are working out whether or not music's for them. You know, am I going to invest in myself? I'm on the fence. Vampir is kind of the right program at that point to then help you decide, okay, now I know I've got access to this world. I've got sort of a peek into the world of music. Um, is this for me? And then the folks who ultimately decide, yes, it is, will see them convert and become a pro user. But for many people, they'll, you know, they'll dip their toe in and decide it's not for them. And that's perfectly okay. That's what living is about. It's about trying things. But again, we have this, that price point is really tricky, right? Because we've got to, we can't put it too far out of reach that no one dares go near it. And, you know, to that point, we realize we do probably need to offer something at a slightly higher price point again. And that's where our education stuff comes in. So that's sold at $23 a month, but that gives you literally like access to a music business course, which would otherwise cost you tens of thousands of dollars in any country. You can access that for peanuts, um, you know, compare when you compare the two and that's being put together by professors around the world in Canada, Australia, America. And that's like you know, very good value for money and appropriate, I think. Um, but we're experimenting with price points all the time. Like I'd be lying to you if I said we've nailed it, but we're a startup. Our job is to move fast and break things. And part of that means experimenting with pricing so that you're, you're inviting in as many people as, as possible. I think you have the right attitude about that. You can tell that you've been in the business and you've been in those people's shoes. So you understand the problems and you understand the wants and needs that doesn't always happen. No. And look, it, it, it's, I remember when Tinder pro or whatever, Tinder gold or whatever Tinder's thing is called. I remember when that was sub $10 and now I believe it's in the 70 or $80 a month range. Now I know why that got there because I've been in those same board meetings and I, I, I know how those conversations go because when you get to the realization, oh, if only X percent of our user base is converting and we're selling something for $5 a month, we would have to get, and you do the numbers and you're like, oh, we'd have to get to a billion people before we have a serious business on our hands. And so I understand why those companies have gone in that direction. Our complication and the road, that the hard sort of path that we're walking is musicians position or disposable income position is what I've already said it was, which is not amazing a lot of the time. And so that's why instead of us just hiking prices every year, which could be one way a CEO might go about it, we've gone, no, let's just put in different valuable services at different value points. Um, and so we'll see if that works long-term. The early signs are good, but we'll need to keep adding things at different price points that justify the cost in order to make a sustainable company. It's tricky. It's tricky stuff. You know, not everyone can do it. That's for sure. Okay. Last question, Josh. What is the best piece of business advice or just the best piece of advice that maybe you received from somebody or you learned along the way? Do your research, especially before you start anything. I learned this firsthand in another thing I did, but I've seen it more times than I can count. When people start a a small business and that can be an artist project or it can be a startup with investors and anything in between but when people start a project that they're passionate about they'll typically throw in a minimum of like five years and that's assuming it fails right and that five years is like getting the initial injection giving it a red hot crack for a couple of years going through what everyone goes through called the trough years and then usually year four or five you'll either 
succeed and, and you'll work out how to make it work or you'll fail. But either way, you're going to put in those five years. Let's call it five years, even though it's not a hard and fast rule. If you spent just, let's say you spent a few hours researching whatever it is you want to do before you decide you're going to do it, double it because you probably only spend a few hours, but at the bare minimum, double it or triple it if you can, because adding an extra couple of hours into your life to save you potentially five years is the, and time is the most valuable asset you'll ever have and the greatest commodity and all that, that research period is the most valuable time you'll ever spend in your life because it will determine the next half a decade minimum. So that's my only advice is just do your research, make sure there's a market for what it is that you you're doing make sure that there's uh, it's not a crowded market if there is one that whatever you're doing is somehow either enhancing something or doing it better than something before or is cheaper or whatever but do your research because if i've just saved one person five years of their life I'm a, i'll die a happy man time is the most valuable asset you know you don't know what's going to happen in this short time that we're on the planet but uh, you don't get time back you can find out more about josh and vamper at vampr.com that's vampr v-a-m-p-r.com v-a-m-p-r.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com remember that you can learn all about the latest in music audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com there you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events that's bobbyosinski.com listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 